host Ryan, and we're back with the Runation novel part two, chapter 15 and 16. So as I promised, <laughs> I'm doing the next episode. <laughs> um, let's get right into it. Housekeeping up top. You can listen to us everywhere. Visit us at podcastcore.com for all of our info. Remember that's C-O-R. Uh, email us at podcastcore at gmail.com to get in contact and then follow us on all the platforms. Uh, we appreciate it. Just a quick, you know, clickable button uh, because that helps us with discoverability. So thanks again. And then leave a like or a comment or both uh, to let us know how you feel. And if you're, if you're enjoying what we're doing uh, and then, you know, word of mouth is the easiest way into the show. So tell one friend to learn what not to say by listening to the casuals of Runeterra podcast. And that statement will be important as we get to these chapters. So chapter 15, and this chapter specifically is just stuffed with details describing the environment of the Blessed Isles, which is cool, uh, especially pre-Runation. So let's hop into scene one. So scene one, we're on Tyrus's ship and Callista is aboard that ship and they're arriving to the Blessed Isles. And as expected, Callista is shocked by what she sees. She's never seen anything like this. And I'll go ahead and read a quote here uh, describing the first things she sees. Uh, quote, each isle was surrounded by dark cliffs, the tops carpeted in vibrant green. The larger islands were inhabited, but not densely so. Callista glimpsed geometric paddocks and walled fields among the white buildings dotting the land, along with carefully coppiced areas of woodland. Sheep and other livestock grazed, and people knelt along neat, perfectly arranged rows of crops or directed harnessed horned beast to till the soil. Uh, a couple big words here. So um, the first thing she's seeing is rural areas, right? Like farmland, um, which isn't too wild. And then we get more detailed descriptions of the well-designed city center and the docks. Uh, but Callista has this worrisome thought here, which once again reinforces some of Tyrus's suspicions and things we've talked about in the past about subconscious bias that's kind of built into people from, let's say, imperialist areas uh, like Camivore with that history. And I'm gonna read this quote. It says, however, there was one thing about the city that struck her the most. It's completely defenseless. There was no towering wall, no fortifications, no portcullises, no killing grounds, no catapults or ballistae guarding the harbor. Callista saw no signs of any military presence or warships assessing the city center as general. She knew it could be taken with pitiful small armed forces. She could invade it with a handful of ships and a few hundred good soldiers. Now, this is one of those thoughts and moments where you're like, hey, Callista, what's up? Why, <laughs> why are you thinking about this in this moment? Because it's one thing to realize that there's no military presence, but then to associate that with how easy she could pull off a military op operation here is the part that's a bit worrying. Uh, but we will try not to read too much into it because like she said, she came with good intentions. So as she's now walking through the city, she stands out, right? Especially the fact that she's carrying her weapon uh, on her person because as we just talked about, there's really no military present here. There is some sort of police presence, but not in the way that you would expect, like soldiers 
um, actually roaming the streets with their weapons out. And she actually makes a comment here, says, quote, you don't get many outsiders, I'm guessing, said Callista. Not often, Tyrus replied, oh, there are people here from cultures far and wide. Diversity of experience and voices creates diversity in thinking, after all. But no, no newcomers. They're infrequent, and only those brought here by one such as me ever make it through the hallowed mist. So there's a curation process. So if you want to look at like the lighter side, obviously, no need for military is great, right? No need for conflict in the city. But also, even though there's a diverse culture, it's curated by those who bring people in. And that can create other issues. Uh, but yeah, so Tyrus gives her a tour. And Callista mentions also the absence of abject poverty. So we get another quote here that says, I see no beggars, she observed, no downtrodden. Are they elsewhere in the city and kept out of these districts? You see none because there are none, said Tyrus. We have the good fortune and means to ensure that none live in destitution. So why would we not help those who are in need? Now, I'm going to take a bit of time here. <laughs> if you're an avid listener of our show, Hetch and I don't hide our social ideology and how we see things in the world we live. And this is something we talk about a lot about how, well, we talk about the opposite side of this, right? Where there's so many imperialist nations in Runeterra, there's so much conquering of you know rural areas, there is a lot of destitution. Uh, but to have an area now, or if you have like Piltover, which is a heavily capitalist representation, well, now that you have this Blessed Isles, right, even the name itself, kind of representing this utopic uh, version of a environment where it's, hey, everything is good. We have access to all this knowledge. We have access to all these resources. And we also have the defense of the mist on our side. So we don't have to deal with, you know, military defenses and all those shenanigans. Uh, that lead usually to human suffering, we can focus on taking care of the people. And for all we're given at this point, that's what they're doing. And Callista's still trying to find holes in that because she comes from one of the most imperial nations at this point in time, right? Think Roman Empire. That's probably the best example uh, to compare to Camivore. And Tyrus even mentions this later on. But yeah, so after you know these constants, she finally, like, okay, cool. This city's just real dope. Let me just, you know, soak it all in. And Tyrus actually hands her off to Rise. And he tells Rise, hey, can you show her to where she's staying? I need to head to the council and request an audience for her uh, in a timely manner. And Rise is like, okay, cool. Obviously, he doesn't want to do it because Rise is currently in his rebellion or at his max rebellion phase, <laughs> right? And he shows her to what essentially is like a lavish Airbnb. And there's no small talk here. Remember previously... Rise was real chatty, and then that incident happened between him and Callista, so he's no longer chatty for obvious reasons, but he shows her, leaves her, and then bounces, right, and goes to do his own thing, who knows what. And during this time, Callista once again is becoming suspicious of this environment, right? And we have more quotes here where the city was beautiful and ordered, yet something seemed to be missing. Something was lacking, some indefinable quality that stopped Helia from feeling lived in or welcoming, even though many thousands of people made their homes here. It felt cold for all the unblemished 
sunshine that bathed it. It was perfect, but soulless. Callista could not find any fault to, a, to point to, but she wondered if that was the problem. And this tends to happen if you want to sum it up under the phrase, too good to be true, right? That's where we're currently at. Nothing has been proven as such yet, but we'll let this play out. And then when she gets to her, you know, her Airbnb, <laughs> uh, we have another quote here where it says, an entire wing was dedicated to bathing with three pools of different temperatures in three separate rooms. In another direction, there was a personal library with thousands of leather-bound books and a sun-drenched balcony overlooking the city and the sea beyond. Beyond the bedroom itself, a cavernous chamber with a circular bed sunk into the floor, she found a garden terrace filled with artful, artfully maintained marble-sided raised beds and geometric fountains. Ivy and flowers cascaded down the exterior walls. So it's beautiful, right? Once again, falling into that, it's too good to be true. And she even sees a, a not a servant, but an attendant for her and tries to ask them, does everyone live like this? Naturally, the attendant doesn't speak Camivorian, so they kind of smile, nod, and go about their business. And then she goes and takes a bath and chill, right? She goes, takes a bath, and when she comes back, she finds a massive spread of delicious food. Her armor has been cleaned while she was in the bath uh, and oiled and polished. But her weapon's fine. They didn't touch her weapon, which she finds pleasure in something that she's expecting, right? Um, and then she sees a note. And in that note, she reads that she's been granted an audience with the council the following day, and this is a big relief for her, and the only thing she hopes is that the queen is still alive during this time. This takes us to scene two. So scene one, pretty long scene. In scene two, we get another swap here to our boy, Erlich Grail. And he's currently tracking down some sounds he's heard, and he knows it's not just like a rodent or a standard, you know, just nature doing its thing, he thinks is an intruder. And due to his knowledge of the tunnels, he's able to kind of navigate towards the sound in complete darkness. So whatever it is, won't notice him. And he can even track people by sound alone, right? Which <laughs> this man's been down here so long that he's developed echolocation is pretty impressive and also creepy. And during his time frame, he pulls out this curved sickle that's super sharp that he keeps on him. You know, he's got that thing on him and he's ready to punish whoever is foolish enough to come into his domain unwelcomed. Because the, remember, the way he sees this space, he believes he's the king, right? This is his jungle and he's the king of the jungle. And then we swap to scene three here, which flips to Rise's perspective because he drops off Callista and then fucks off. We, we don't really know where he went, right? Well, we see here, and by the way, what I'm about to describe, I think this, you know, Hetch and I kind of point to certain parts and stories that would make really good shorts, like animated shorts, and I think this would make a cool one, especially because I don't think people would be expecting it um, for the character Rise. But we move to Rise's perspective, and this is for the first time, and Rise is doing a bit of Nicolas Cage, you know, I'm going to steal the Declaration of Independence type beat. Uh, he's doing a little knowledge heist. And we find out that whenever Tyrus and Rise come to the aisles, he uses his spare time to sneak into the vault and to learn as many secrets from the old mages as possible um, because Tyrus won't tell him, right? And he even blames Tyrus for forcing, quote unquote, uh, him to seek this option. 
since Tyrus withholds information from him because Tyrus thinks he's not ready for that information yet, which he's not. <laughs> and then we get display a, a display here of Rise's expertise, both physically when he's lockpicking and moving through this environment, and then magically when he's disarming complex arcane wards. And he even talks about how thrilling it is again to be in this environment. Because remember, in his old days, he used to be a thief and a mercenary, and he didn't really hate it. It's just he kind of ran to Tyrus at a point in his life where he could use Tyrus's help, and Tyrus offered you know a hand. So he's he's having fun, right? He makes it into the room, and he unlocks an important chest. But before he gets to dig through it, he stops because he hears a sound, and he grabs his lantern, turns around, and he sees a dark figure just standing motionless in the room. And he attempts to gather power as fast as he can, but before he can do anything, he's immediately struck in the side of the head before losing consciousness. And that's where chapter 15 ends. So chapter 16, uh, we're going to have multiple perspectives again. So with scene one, uh, we start this chapter with Callista speaking to the council. And she believes originally that Tyrus would have been a part of these proceedings in a more significant way but is shocked when he tells her that he's kind of lower on the totem pole comparatively, um, as we know from our prologue. And she's now in this room with this gold dome, this light shining directly on her. She can't really see the council, uh, but the council's peering down at her in silence as she's pleading her case. And after a long moment of silence, you know, Callista starts losing patience and asking for a quick answer and offering anything Camivore can provide, and the council takes offense to this, right? Even saying that they don't take kindly to bribes and threats. And Callista reiterates, she's like, no, 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 I'm here in good faith. Excuse my rudeness, essentially. Then the council decides, after a long moment, uh, tells her they will continue to, to deliberate and she can leave. And Callista doesn't like this at all. And her impatience once again starts showing, and they reiterate that she will be sent for once they have reached a decision. And this takes us to scene two. And now we switch back to the recently attacked Rise. Now Rise is waking up from, you know, being smacked in the head <laughs> um, unsuspectingly. And his arms are outstretched and they're chained. And he has a bright light shining directly in his face. This is not a good situation. <laughs> if you ever read any book, uh, or any fantasy where torture's involved. This is kind of the beginning. <laughs> and then he notices that the man who captured him is a thresher. And I'm sure, you know, I don't have to tell you who this is. We're, we're talking about Ehrlich, right, at this point. And at first, Rise is kind of in a cocky, you know, self-assured mood, mood. And he tells Ehrlich to just, you know, just turn me in. You're just a thresher. You don't matter. I don't care what you think. Turn me over to the masters and let it be let it be done, right? This is he sees this as an out to finally have a reason to leave Tyrus's side and go do whatever he wants, right? Instead of being dragged along as this lowly apprentice. But fairly quickly, he starts to realize he's not dealing with a sane man. And he begins to worry. And this tends to be, <laughs> I think, you know, I'll have to reiterate that Rise is still very young, right? Like late teens. So he's very brash. He just does things. And it's a constant cycle of him, you know, fucking around and finding out, <laughs> as, as you would say. So Ehrlich finds out that he's the apprentice of Tyrus. This does not help his case because if you remember our prologue episode, 
we start off with Tyrus being the man who took Ehrlich's job. He took his promotion, and this sealed Ehrlich's fate as a thresher in these dungeons for the foreseeable future, right? His career was pretty much stunted at that point. And Rise immediately notices that Ehrlich hates the elites and the masters and tries his best to convince Ehrlich that, yeah, I may be Tyrus's apprentice, but I hate him too. I hate the masters. I hate how, you know, uppity they are. And he struggles to do this. And then he goes to plan B, which is trying to gather his magic um, in a weak attempt because his arms are separate, right? He needs to be able to form rune, runes and stuff like that and incantations with his hands. And he can't. They're, they're pinned down. And there's a mention here, which I think is pretty cool, which is it's describing Rise as he builds his magic and prepares to do something. And it mentions that his eyesight even becomes purple and blinded by the magic as he's preparing to to use the the force, right? And this display of gathering magic peaks Ehrlich because Ehrlich knows what Rise is. Rise doesn't really completely understand his power. He just knows he has it, right? So he says to Rise, how did you get into that room of complex wards without the knowledge and without any keys? Rise explains, it was easy. He's done it many times before because when he, in his spare time, he kind of goes out and you know breaks into the vaults. So Ehrlich decides he may have a use for Rise after all. And this takes us to scene three. So now we're back with Callista. Callista's in the room. She's pacing, frustrated. And Tyrus is there trying to reassure her that, you know, the masters can't be rushed. So stop letting something uncontrollable frustrate you. And naturally, Callista doesn't want to hear that, but she tries her best. Um, I mean, he even mentions that, yeah, you're impatient because you're you're a general. Like you're you're an army brat, you're a ro you're royalty, you're not used to having to wait on others. And she thanks Tyrus again, you know, for his help. Um, but he tells her, you know, only thank me once your queen is safe. And this takes us back to scene four. So I know we're jumping around pretty quickly here, uh, but we're wrapping up with scene four. We're back with Ehrlich now, and he's watching Rise do his work on this magical locked chest. Uh, this is essentially just a trial run, so he can kind of prove that Rise knows what's he, what he's doing. And during this time frame, Rise is cocky again. And Ehrlich tells him that, okay, here's the deal. I left a note for the masters in case something happens to me and it details all of your crimes. And if you help me, he will not only destroy the note so the masters don't find out about what Rise has been doing every time they come to the Blessed Isles, but he will also give Rise what he's been looking for because he told Rise earlier, he's like, you've been digging and digging every time you come here. No matter how long you dig, you don't know these dungeons and tunnels and the contents of the, these dungeons as I do. You need my help. So Rise agrees, right? He's here for one reason. So he gives Rise a sample. He's like, here's a page, and it's written in Icathian cuneiform. Now, let me tell you, his eyes go wide for the reasons my eyes went wide when I read that. And I recommend that if you're interested, once again, there's going to be a bit of spoiling here. We have a set of Icathian episodes, which go in, goes deep into what happened in Icathia. And if you want to know more about how powerful this information is and can be, uh, especially with Rise coming across it at a young age, let me throw in dangerous as a keyword there too, uh, then go check those out by all means. But I won't spoil that here. So Ehrlich promises, okay, that's a page. I'll give you the whole volume if you help me. 
once again rises like, fuck yeah, I'm in. And then Ehrlich ends the chapter by saying, what do you know of the well of ages? So we know where this is going and that wraps up chapter 16. So final thoughts, book's still good, book's still fun. Um, I like that we're now bouncing around perspectives a lot more. You can tell we're getting back into a faster pace of story now uh, because of all these things that are, you know, we're building up. We have the council going on. We have Ehrlich and Rise meeting, which who who doesn't want to see a, I want to say buddy cop moment with Thresh and Rise, but you have a dangerous, insane Ehrlich and then a uh, uh, reckless young Rise who knows where that can go uh, because they're trying to fucking get into the well of ages. <laughs> um, so yeah, I hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll keep the train going. Uh, but for now, as always, thanks for listening. And we'll be back soon with the next episode. And as Hedge always says, take care, everybody.